you know, that was like an accident. I was trying to fix a tape and I glued the ferrous side down and I peeled off the backing. I tried to peel off the tape. Audio stayed, but the tape came away. So it transferred the audio in reverse onto the, onto the surface. And I really was like, well, that's interesting. It kind of like set up a more, it kind of gave it a more content, like this really obsolescent media that's kind of leaving behind this ghost of what it was that you can't, can't have any access to. And I'm always, I've always been interested in that break to make something visual about something that you hear. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 108th episode, Terrence Hannum comes on to talk to me about his recent works, which incorporate a lot of magnetic tape, as well as sound and installation pieces, his music projects and collaborations. So please stay tuned for that. It's a good episode. Again, Terrence applied to our February competition, and we're finally getting him on in April. So it's very cool to connect with him. So hope you enjoy the interview. I do want to remind listeners, especially artists, that we are currently accepting 2014 submissions for our competition. It's our third annual competition. Our juror this year, Richard Holland of Bad at Sports, he'll be selecting nine artists, three from three different categories. That's BA and BFA, MA and MFA, and professional artists. Artists of all media can apply, so we encourage that. And the exciting thing, once again this year, we're going to be offering some solo exhibitions. So one artist from each of those categories will be set up with a solo exhibition. It's all very easy and straightforward. You can check it out at studiobreak.com. Of course, if you know any great artists that you think should apply, students and professionals, please let them know. If you've been sent this link anonymously and you just are listening to the audio somehow, we want to explain that we are a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists that come on and talk about their practice, all of the things that got them to where they are and what's currently going on in their studio. You can find the interviews on studiobreak.com. Again, we have a big archive section of interviews, over 108, and you can easily access them that way. Again, check out the slideshows. You can visit their websites. You can link to the iTunes store where you can subscribe to the podcast and once again we want to remind you we are on Facebook so you can like our Facebook page and get updates that way we are on Twitter at Studio Break on Twitter and of course we do have a Tumblr page that's studio-break.tumblr so please follow us there alright here is our interview with Terrence so stay tuned Welcome to Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined this morning by Terrence Hannum. How are you? I'm doing well. You answered the uh, call a couple of months ago, and we wound up getting you on eventually because I, I just thought your work was so so awesome. So again, thanks for taking the time. Sure. Thanks for the interest. And so, you know, we're catching you right as you leave uh, before a, a tour. So I'm sure we'll we'll talk about your music interests and, and things like that a bit later. Did you grow up as the the musician slash guy drawing like I don't know in bathroom stalls wanting to be a rock star? <laughs> <laughs> no, well I was maybe more of a musician. Probably I started playing in bands. When I was about twelve and kind of like really crappy punk hardcore bands. And then I just I just kept doing it. And I, you know, so probably my interest first was with music. 
but uh, it's just kind of I had something I just can't quite shake, I guess. And, and, <laughs> and what was your uh, what was your instrument at the time? Was it because you said that was guitar? Actually, that was guitar. Yeah, and I I would do a lot of the artwork for things, but I never really I never really thought about making art until maybe I was in college. Yeah, it's so interesting because you know, the, like I think a lot of people think that the only route is I don't know. You get like you know, submerged in it when you're a kid. And I say submerged, it almost feels like you're drowned at, at times, you know, like people, but well, I, I think a lot of students might come in and they're just like, yeah, you know, this is how it is. Um, you know, so it's interesting to kind of come at it from a, that different kind of perspective. Um, so in terms of, I guess the, the way that you came about to it, I mean, um, did you, did you start college wanting to be an artist or how, how did that like choice get made? No, I, um, <laughs> Actually, I went to college um, planning to go into the seminary, and um, I uh, so I majored in religion and I minored in philosophy, and I did an internship at this church, and I hated it. I hated almost every day of it, and I thought it was the most boring thing that I could <laughs> ever pick. And, and it wasn't like bad; like everyone around me was great, but. I just, you know, I would go to these meetings with all these pastors and it would just be about like the parking lot and what color are we going to paint things? And it was just was like, this is, I, I'm not a manager. I can't, I can't do this. Um, and I'm really thankful for that. And I, I went back to college and, you know, kind of had a little bit of a crisis. And I told, I had this really great advisor. He's the chair of the religion department. He's a great theologian and his name was Wait, Dr. Wait Willis. And he said, uh, that's, that's okay. <laughs> you right, know? Right. And, uh, he was like, well, what else do you want to do? And, uh, I told him, you know, I, you know, at the time I, you know, I knew a lot about art history when I was young. I grew up, go, I grew up outside the Washington DC area. I'd always go into the museums and I was a teenager. I was pretty nerdy and I was just going to go into museums and I started going to art museums. And I started realizing I liked art. I liked art. I enjoyed thinking about art and, uh, I kind of told him I like art. I think I like art. And he's like, well, major in art and stick around with us, you know? Mm -hmm. So I stayed in the religion department and I double majored in, in uh, studio art. And uh, that, that's kind of how it all happened, I guess. Well, and what, I kind of know what drew you to that. I mean, what did you gravitate towards? Was it, was it kind of like in a candy store in terms of, you know, just kind of being able to do something that you're interested in then as opposed to critiquing the parking lot colors? Yeah, I think I think I think I was maybe a little bit freer because I didn't have like my high school had a terrible art program. I went to high school in Florida, and um, it was just crap. I think I took like one art class, and it was mm -hmm. you know I think we were like just drawing with like number two pencils. It was high school. It was just pretty ridiculous. So I didn't really have like a connection. I, but I I would visit art museums, and my my parents kind of would take me there, or you know, and I my go and visit my dad in uh, Virginia, I'd go to DC and he'd go to work and I would take the Metro in. And I was at the Hirshhorn, like pretty much almost every day. There were some weeks I was there just like, I don't know, I didn't have anything else to do. And I had a few bucks in my pocket. So I'd go in and just walk around and, you know, I went everywhere, like the Sackler museum and everything. It's kind of like, I realized that I was good at kind of recalling artists and time periods and I could kind of identify things really well and I kind of got ideas of influence. I would go in, they'd do like free Warhol films at like the National Gallery or something and I would just go because I was like, it's free, you know? So, I and it was great because I didn't even know that what I was being exposed to. I mean, it was like, you know, it was before the internet so 
before the internet was, I mean, you know, obviously before the internet became like such a part of our lives. So, uh, you know, when I was in college, you know, I didn't really have like this, um, you know, where most of my friends in the art department, maybe had come from an arts high school. They kind of had been fed that, that they had all this facility about whatever and these kind of preconceived ideas. And I think the artist I kind of gravitated towards are maybe a little bit more conceptual in some ways or, you know, it took me a while to process all of it, but that was like Felix Gonzalez Torres had this exhibition at the Hirschhorn Museum. And um, I think I remember that show because, I, you know, I was probably like 15 or something or 16. And I knew then it's like, I really like this art stuff. I don't know what this is about. You right, know? right. And, uh, and, uh, but I'm going to figure it out. And I remember like I would read. And so I started reading like Art in America and Art Forum and they're just in the bookstore because I couldn't afford that crap, you know, as, as a teenager. But, um, I start reading that, you know, and, I, and it kind of gave me this window into like what was really happening in the contemporary art world. So I was just really kind of naturally curious. And sure. And and so, I mean, obviously, you know, you have like a maybe like a typical curriculum in terms of like what a what a 2D class is or what a, what a drawing yeah. class is. But was that something that you got into or was it kind of something where maybe some of more of the kind of advanced classes? Oh, it was hard. It was, it was definitely hard. <laughs> yeah. So it was painting. It was, you know, like you had this, I mean, it was really good in many ways. Cause I, I identified like, I, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. You know, I don't know how to paint my drawing from observations. Okay. You know? And, um, so I started just, you know, I, I mean, I, I had really great teachers in the art department. Uh, I honestly, I thought it was going to be easy to be honest with you. I was like, it's going to be easy. I like art. It's going to be easy. But they hired they hired all these young professors out of like University of Pennsylvania and these great people who just finished their MFAs who like came in and were like we're just gonna crack skulls like all day right, and that's right. all they did was like <laughs> beat it into us you know and it was which was great because it was serious and you know for me I'd already been I'd already been kind of like had this crisis where I was thinking like oh, I'm not gonna go to seminary anymore study religion. So I'm. A, I think graduate school sounds like an awesome time. You know? I don't know what I was thinking. And would you say like there was a specific way of working? Talking about going to checking out museums and and seeing these exhibitions, I started thinking of Frank Stella at some point in terms of I don't know something loosely connected. Oh, like as an in, influence, like an influence on me. Oh, definitely. I mean, because I'm curious because you know, like I think a lot of. A lot of schools might have like a particular way of work. Our undergrads do the the human figure, and that's what they do. I mean, were you were you interested in kind of materials and exploring abstraction then, or was it something that? No, <laughs> no, I wasn't. I mean, I really um, at that time, you know, my I learned um, this is at Florida Southern College, really small liberal arts school in Lakeland, Florida. Really great program, actually, and and a lot of the professors are still there. I was definitely kind of in the middle because I had this more analytic kind of background from my philosophy. So a lot of the ideas and content of like post-structuralism or whatever was pretty easy for me to kind of grasp. I didn't like run away from it um, where I felt that maybe a lot of the other um, representational artists were kind of like, it was kind of this reactionary position of like where they were kind of afraid of this kind of content that could interpret their work or whatever. I kind of embraced that. I thought it was kind of interesting but I was coming out from a different place. So to me, again, you know, most of the art I liked was more about the idea. But but the instruction I was getting was definitely more like pretty old school, glazing, grisaille, all that fun stuff. I still remember it. I did it all through graduate school. 
And then I think probably after graduate school is when things really changed for me. I always liked abstraction. I always was attracted to it. I just didn't know what it meant to me. I, I really didn't know what did I have to contribute to it, which is just ironic because I think that most of the work I was making was maybe more photo-based. Mm-hmm. I feel that I, had, you know, I look back, it's like, and I had nothing to contribute. There's like a, a billion painters who work kind of in this photo-based way. I think, you know, there's like the famous like Jerry Saltz article about like, it's like Gerhard Richter, Luke Toyman's, you know, like kind of like that, that's it, you know, like, right, yeah, right. Like, everyone kind of fits within these, this spectrum and it's boring or whatever. I think he wrote that like kind of in like maybe like 10 years ago or something like that. And obviously it stuck with me because it kind of like resonated, like, what am I doing? What am I contributing? You know, um, outside of the subject, you know, what am I, what am I doing here? Right. And that's that's kind of an interesting thing that I think people kind of battle with as they're kind of deciding what kind of artist they want to be, you know? Yeah. And we're talking about that time where you're kind of moving on from being like a kid and then this is yeah. this is what I own, you know. This is like yeah. this is supposed to be what I'm what I'm interested in. So how do you how do you figure out, you know, what exactly that is? Yeah, I think I think it's it's also a little bit daunting. I mean, there's like I mean, think about it, like abstraction wasn't exactly in favor kind of through the 90s mm-hmm. maybe on the tall end of things it was like the bigger artists like the frank stellas or whatever or ellsworth kelly or whatever could kind of like do it because that's what they've always done but you're talking about young artists it really wasn't like the first thing kind of going down i mean painting alone right was kind of like not not happening really that's kind of like a 21st century like interest again, right? The early part of the 21st century. It's like, we are interested in painting again, right. you know? And um, so it's really odd when you even like look back and and abstraction kind of had all this baggage that was like just weird, you know? Like how do you even delve into it? Like you got to go read 12 books of the collected writings of Clement right, Greenberg right. <laughs> or whatever, like get into it. And, and then, hey, I, I really, I've read those. I like Clement Greenberg. And I, you know, like, I'm, 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 I'm into that. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it's like, that's really daunting. And uh, maybe like in some ways it's easier to kind of like, I'm going to paint photos of my friends doing something really obscure and, and hope that people can kind of latch on to this kind of tangential meta narrative. And I think I became less and less, I just got really uninterested in that. I became less interested in that. So when you went to get your MFA in Chicago, sure. what was what was that like? I mean, obviously, I would imagine since you kind of, I don't know, something must have happened there, right? So, I mean. <laughs> oh, no, it did. No. What, what, what did it do for your work? It took a while. <laughs> it was, um, you know, graduate school for me was definitely on this big delay. I, I was very stubborn. And, um, or I feel like I was, maybe I, I don't think I came off that way, but, but it was wonderful in many ways. I mean, I was exposed to so much. I actually did a post-baccalaureate for a year and then I did my MFA at the School of Art Institute of Chicago. And, um, you know, I had this great cohort of, um, other artists and everyone was coming from these different backgrounds. And that was really interesting to me. Many of them had their own careers, kind of do. I mean, maybe not art careers, but they. This was like their essentially like their second career or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought that that was that definitely was interesting because I was coming straight from school, you know, right into post back, right into graduate school. But um, it was a wonderful experience, and it definitely was like this thing that took a few years to kind of like sink in. But I think the most important things were just like having a good studio practice, you know, and, and, um, 
how to be critical about your own work and um, and analyze it and be honest with yourself. I felt I felt like I took away a lot about that that I just didn't really have before. It's definitely kind of sustained me throughout the years in many ways. And, and also, again, like that cohort of artists that are still the people I talk to. I mean, when I started making this new work, like the first rounds of images I made were to my friends I went to graduate school with. And like, am I crazy? <laughs> you know? Right, right. And, uh, you know, like, am I, is changing this, you know, you know, and it was, it was great to like get responses back and hear what people were thinking about where things were going and get this, uh, really supportive response about what was happening. So it was wonderful. I had great advisors, you know, who I, some of them I still keep in touch with, you know, some more than others. It was, it was great. Were there any inklings early at this time, like what you would wind up be doing? I mean, were you playing around with sound pieces? Were you doing installations and, and, you know, pairing them with these uh, magnetic images or what, what, how did, how did that all come about? I guess. I function on this delay and my whole life has been like trying to like catch up the delay into the cycle, make things a little more recent. But uh, at the time I had this like analog tape four track and I was like recording things. You know, some of them were actually like songs. Some of them were like just audio experiments. And, um, you know, it was, I was definitely doing music. And I think probably like my first year or two was, I was again, just really floundering in some ways about what I wanted to accomplish my, one of my advisors was uh, Ray Yoshida. I don't know if you know him. Um, he passed away recently, but uh, he was this great artist, kind of associated with the Chicago Imagists. I think he was a little before them. You know, we did not have a good or the best kind of advisor relationship, but he'd always kind of come back and check in with me. And um, I started making these paintings of hardcore bands, like performing. And they were really like labor-intensive oil paintings on wood panel. And um, he wrote me this nice note that was just, I, I just left it there. And I hadn't talked to him like a whole semester or something. And I still remember that because it was like definitely like really encouraging. And at the same time I was working, my advisor was Jim Nutt, who I'm probably more, maybe more well-known Chicago imagist, who was really supportive of that work too. And, you know, just kind of having the, these voices, like you found something that's a little bit your voice and go with it uh, was definitely helpful. But I definitely experimented more with, you know, I took a lot of video. So I was doing, I started getting more into video. I was definitely interested in video in undergrad, but I had definitely more at my disposal in graduate school, uh, technology wise, which is really great. It's kind of why I picked uh, the art Institute over other schools because of all the stuff at my disposal. And then, you know, it was, uh, I took some really interesting like digital printmaking classes and some sound classes and a lot of it just kind of like festered, I guess, <laughs> kind of right. took a while and, you know, definitely would maybe cycle back to some of the interests I had in audio and whatnot. But it, 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 it definitely took a little bit of time I'm trying to think of maybe like um, 2010, I did like my first kind of big audio installation. I started doing like more kind of just, just audio pieces I was installing with kind of this like array of speakers and uh, that that was kind of where that came from. The other thing that we kind of maybe hinted at, it, even just kind of in the way that we're how, – how you came to art is, you know, that we kind of have to find our own path. But then, I don't know, like I think when when you start making stuff that's more you, it seems like there's a realization and you you keep moving towards that almost, you know. It kind of gives yeah. you kind of permission to keep working that way. Did it seem like that to you? Were the ideas of you know music and and that I mean was it did it become more and more of like part of your work like you kind of broke the barriers between these things? I think that you know everything's 
everything kind of, again, it's very slow, but it all leads up, you know, to, I feel like the work I'm doing now, you know, I've always, you know, obviously after graduate school, I started this band with my friend Andre called Locrian, kind of as an offshoot of a band that um, I was doing with my wife at the time. He was playing with us. Then that band was called Unlucky Atlas. And then we started Locrian and then him and I started this cassette tape label for noise and experimental music. And, um, that started to wrap up over a year ago. We kind of were like, we kind of did all we wanted to do with this record label. And, um, I was home repairing this, um, here in Baltimore and I was, I was repairing, I have this old tape delay. It's a Roland bass echo. And inside of this box is this cassette tape. Uh, well, it's not cassette tape. It's like a quarter inch tape. It's thicker, a little bit thicker than cassette tape. And, uh, I was just kind of trying to repair it and pulled out all the tape. It, the tape runs across these seven player heads and that's how it can make a delay sound. So you get all those great trippy, spacey science fiction, kind of sounds. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's really temperamental and I'm an, I'm a moron because I, I tour with it. I take it on the road when we play in, in um, the States or whatever. So, um, I was repairing it and as I pulled out all the tape, I was just looking at the surface and I was like, wonder, wonder how this would be collaged. Can I collage with this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I started doing it, but you know, I've been, I've been making tapes since I was 12, you know, like dubbing by hand and taking them apart and like, uh, you know, stealing, um, shell cases from another tape and putting it on like the tape I wanted to put it on or, or opening it up and you can make a loop just by cutting the tape and using scotch tape to tape it together and make this one loop of cassette tape. So I'd always been kind of doing this for about 20 years. I think about it. So everything definitely kind of points you towards this. And I think getting that validation, like when I was in school, that this culture, this scene that I was coming from had some value as a subject um, where taping things, uh, trading tapes, mixtapes were such a big part of it. You know, I don't know if, if I'd be making the work I'm making now if it wasn't for a lot of that encouragement. How did you wind up experimenting with that in the beginning? You know, I know that you know, if you look at materials, sure. some images maybe like 2013 where there's like a lot of different kinds of tape. I mean, was that something sure. that you explored in terms of maybe I can use this for a collage? Like, how, like what, can, what other kind of materials can I use? How, how are they fixed along the edges? I mean... Well, most of them are like pretty flush up to the edge. And then, um, you know, at first it was definitely like, all right, how do I get this stuff to stay down? And then I started using this kind of like a good, a really good spray adhesive, taping off areas, just kind of like trying to keep things organized and some really sharp exacto knives. I've been making, predominantly making collages uh, for about two years before this, mainly with images. There's Xeroxes. So, you know, I definitely felt comfortable kind of like just chopping stuff up. And also it's like, it's a collage. It's not that precious, you know, like you can kind of like mess it up and, and fix it. And I, I like that. And then, and, you know, I'd run this tape label. So I had, I had a lot of tapes you know, that I hadn't sold. So I was able to kind of like have material and it doesn't, it doesn't take much tape to kind of make one, or at least it didn't at the time. Now it takes a lot more with what I'm doing, but, and the size is definitely growing. So what it looked like in terms of moving away from that that representational aspect of it? I mean, were you taking images and then kind of splicing them up to the point that they become, you know, like these things that are maybe under themselves? Or uh, how, how did that process work? I was weaving a lot of Xeroxes and different pieces of like colored material, 
together and um and then i was using like mirrors and so i just kind of was playing with like surfaces and that's then i don't know i think i found the tape i just was like you know i've always again like i've always been interested in abstraction i've always wanted to make like a really good monochrome that's been like my objective i guess (laughs) and i was like i never just felt comfortable like you know like it's kind of like it's a hard thing to do in the end and and to make it somewhat original I felt like this can do it. This, you know, once I got all the technical stuff to work out, I was like, this can work. This can, this can actually accomplish something. So from that, I started getting more splicing tape, leader tape, foil tape, all these different types of tape that are used in audio production and audio tape manufacturing. And just kind of held on to them and started, I have like, my whole studio is like covered in reels of, uh, different colors, you know, and, uh, and I just have vats of old cassettes and, now, my f- friends who run record labels just now send me all the crappy demos that they get from, you know, just bad hardcore bands or whatever. So I, I, I definitely hang on to those or metal bands or whatever and just kind of like tear them up when I get a chance so I can um, use the subject of the surface of them. But at first, some of the tapes were just my own old tapes that just weren't selling. They're kind of just looking for something to work with so when you're working through them i mean do you design them out first or are you kind of working through them intuitively when when you know as as the process continues they're definitely designed first i mean i kind of come up with them i mean i definitely think of them as like rhythms um so there's this kind of other music connection like i in my solo work i program a drum drum machine so i'll i definitely will kind of think of it like programming a drum machine in a way (laughs) like like you're kind of dividing up time and, you know, where are you putting this accent or whatever. And like, I'm very like visual with even my drum machine programming. So I'll kind of like graph it out. And that's something kind of reflected back to a lot of the work, like where there'll be these gaps or spaces, or even like with some of the more like monochrome work where it'll be matte versus glossy. And even the matte side's pretty glossy. But um, if you flip the tape over, there's the ferrous side, which is a little bit duller and more matte. And if you and the other side is is a mylar backing. Typically, they use other plastics sometimes, depending on the manufacturer. But so I'll I'll kind of I would even alternate that like you know different kind of patterns, and I'm definitely kind of look at rhythms in that way, like visually, like how you would read it, like kind of like a like off on 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 off off on 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 off or whatever, like sure. Um, and then like can I add in like little aberrations? Like if I run out of tape and we get to the blue or red leader tape that's kind of like on the end of the spool, can I use that? And I always do. I always kind of let that little zip kind of remain because it's this nice little punctuation of color and accent that I, I really appreciate. If we look at some of the the works from 2013, you know, there's these little areas that are that are popping out with color. So are those are those pieces of tape that Oh, all the color is tape. So that would be like a splicing tape. So you can get those in many different colors. Or sometimes they're like a leader tape I glued down. The, the, the splicing tape comes with like a silicon adhesive on the other side of it. That's Again, it is archival. But uh, the um, leader tape has no adhesive on it. So I've been... I, that always kind of poses some kind of problems. I've had to kind of deal with that because it's very rigid. and doesn't like to bend very well. And I kind of have to deal with that sometimes when i when i get to that and, and every brand is different so you might get to the end of a tape and, and I'll, then i'll know like oh it's it's uh this brand you know uh but you know for the most part i've kind of figured out how to make everything work and uh, when they're on panel I, um i actually use this kind of it's not that elaborate but it seems elaborate for me but i use this kind of elaborate clamping system where like I just use a bunch of clamps kind of hold all the tape on the edges because you know they, they stick pretty well on the top and then 
I kind of let them cure for a little bit, I guess. And then I'll go back and make sure that all the tape's sticking down and doing well after a few weeks and stuff. But they, they typically hold up pretty well. And again, just a reminder to go to TerrenceHannum.com so you can see what these works look like as we're, you know, thoroughly dissecting them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the, are they on wood supports or did you ever kind of experiment with, you know, different materials? I, I would I would imagine aluminum could be something that would be interesting, but. Yeah, definitely. I've been going back and forth with it. Some of them are kind of like from like ampersand will make these kind of nice art boards. I like those a lot. Um, they're very smooth. And they take the adhesive really well, and they kind of take it very evenly, and that's really important. But um, I'm kind of getting more into getting some more custom stuff done, so I'm, I'm trying to get my trying to get my gesso game going better. You know? But but you know that's not so hard. I've you know but uh, that so that most of our wood supports, I've always debated if they could be like um, uh, on on a wall. I've thought about that too. I've proposed it, but no one's kind of taken me up on it yet. But I, I think of these, they could also be really interesting wall pieces. They'd work in the same way. I think if it was a well-prepared wall, I think it would go down pretty easily um, and make an interesting large abstraction. It'd just be really time-consuming, but I'm okay with that. I kind of like how time-consuming time some of these are uh, to get straight and stuff. But yeah, it's just like a wood support. And, and I use paper. I use like a, a pretty heavy like watercolor paper for a lot of the... Um, works on paper that are on the site. One of the things that I kept noticing, and you're talking about, you know, rhythms just a second ago, it happens maybe in that sense in kind of almost a different way in terms of the collages. There's ones that are really interesting that I think, you know, have like a, these slight alterations that that kind of will make the the positive shape kind of lay down or, or become foreshortened. Mm-hmm. They kind of create this interesting sense of space. Or certainly, like there's some where the where the lines kind of create a rhythm or they kind of build up. But then there's also ones that kind of bounce back and forth, you know, along the edges, you know, kind of like having areas that have popped forward yeah. further back. So I like to think about that and, you know, what you were talking about in terms of kind of creating these these rhythms too. I mean, is that is that something that kind of, I don't know, talks a little bit about your content or are those kind of formal formal things that you're just trying to come up with to explore the material? I mean, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, I use a lot of references from tape splicing. So a lot of the forms are actually like different types of tape splices. I have a bunch of old old books on um, editing tape together. And uh, so that's been kind of like an interesting, like, where a lot of the formal elements will come from. And then other times it's just, it is just kind of like the material does something. Like lately, um, if you look at most of the more recent work, there's no tape actually the Mylar is peeled away and just the ferrous material is left behind, like these traces of the audio. You know, that was like an accident. I was trying to fix a tape and I glued the ferrous side down and I peeled off the backing. I tried to peel off the tape. Audio stayed, but the tape came away. So it transferred the audio in reverse onto the, onto the surface. And I really was like, well, that's interesting. It kind of like set up a more, it kind of gave it a more content, like this really obsolescent media that's kind of leaving behind this ghost of what it was that you can't, can't have any access to. And I'm always, I've always been interested in that break to make something visual about something that you hear, um, whether it's a live performance, you know, in, in my really early work to, to this work where, 
you know, uh, typically you listen to the cassette or, well, no one really, I mean, not many people listen to cassettes. Um, I, I, I do because I'm, I'm involved in all these underground subcultures and I have a tape player in my car. So, you know, that's, that's what I have. Uh, but, uh, you know, I know that, you know, people have these relationships with, with audio, but um, so for me, there's all these, you know, I'm just always kind of looking for looking at how when a tape shells moved an interesting kind of strange, like trapezoid gets made, um, and I'll sketch that out or I'll make these little notes about it and then I'll try and like replicate that in some way to bring us back to the subject in, in, in some ways. How did the sound pieces start to kind of influence, you know, what, what you were doing there? I mean, is, is there a relationship? I did those earlier. Uh, you know, I've, I've installed them quite a few times um, since then, I, you know, mainly because I think that the, it was just this response I had that I really hadn't had in some of my other work. And that, and again, like, you know, when I started repairing that space echo, you know, I was like, well, it's not so different from the audio installations I was making. So it was great to kind of like feel that there was some kind of through line through all through the last four years or three years or whatever it's been for this this work to kind of connect with those audio pieces I had done. One of my favorite records is this record by Brian Eno and um, Robert Fripp called No Pussyfooting. Do you know this record? No, I don't. I don't. And um, uh, Robert Fripp, the guitar player from King Crimson, Brian Eno, at the time, he had just left like Roxy Music and was starting this kind of solo career. And, uh, you know, so the, the worlds of glam and progressive rock were coming together. And they made this, you know, a, a two-track album where Robert Fripp would play the guitar into these tape players. And Brian Eno would space these tape players really far apart. Two, two of them are multiple tape players. And the tape would kind of run through all these like chair legs and whatever else and kind of like it would make a longer loop by having two heads or more than one head it would make a delay i mean there are there were tape delays at that time but this is like a really long tape delay the, the mental image of that was so powerful to me and i started to think about like what that could do to a space or what that could do to you know and and how seeing the the media would change your perception of it you know and i think there's always been people kind of messing with that in some ways. Um, if you look at, you know, like early acousmatic music or even like with um, like someone like Carl Heinz Stockhausen, right? Like he would make these pieces that would have speakers that would be kind of throughout the concert hall. So there would be like a performance happening, but your experience of the performance would change by your position in the concert hall. And I think that that's, that was definitely like conceptually really inspiring to me. So you also have all these kind of collaborations, um, in the form of like books and what looks like records. I mean, how, how do those projects work? Are they again, typically with different artists and, and specific towards, you know, whatever the, the goal is for that, that book or, or edition or projects different. Sometimes we're collaborating more and kind of trading images and ideas. Other times, you know, we're, you know, it's definitely like you do this, I'll do this. And that's that, you know, um, you know, I kind of definitely trust the, the, the people I work with for the art books a little bit more because I get to initiate most of them. So, you know, I, I get to kind of like I, my, the last one I did was with my friend Felicia Atkinson, who's actually like a former student of mine from Columbia college. And she's a really amazing musician and a really great artist. And, uh, her and her partner had put out a record of mine, um, that came with a zine of some drawings that I did. And uh, I, I I really like her work and we really get along really well. So I asked her to do this little zine with me. And so we kind of we kind of made it like two zines together uh, that kind of, you know, correspond in some ways, but it's really brief connection. 
And uh, so it's always different, you know. I mean, I collaborate more with, uh, or we did, I think, with Locri, and we kind of collaborated quite a bit. We did um, collaborations with uh, Christoph Heeman, who's this pretty famous, well-known, like, German ambient artist. And uh, we also did a collaboration with Mammifer that was really, really interesting. That was a lot of fun to do. Uh, but then we kind of were like, no more collaborations. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, just, it, it, it's a lot of work, and um, we kind of wanted to make uh, our own record and, and kind of have it be the three of us back again, kind of making a statement of our own. And it's not, you know, sometimes when you're collaborating, there's a lot of give and take, you know. I think that, and, and then, you know, when you're a band, you're already collaborating, you know, in some ways, and you're working towards like something common and shared. But I think when you bring in this other group of artists, you know, it definitely can, you know, push things in these different, really interesting directions, but it can also feel, you know, like you're maybe losing yourself in some way. And, and that can be good, but you definitely need to kind of go back and gain yourself in, in other ways, you know. It seems like any any time you see a behind the music special you know bands <laughs> keeping yeah. a band together seems like it's enough work anyways because you're kind of managing all these different compromises it yeah. sounds like yeah. so well that's that's kind of interesting too because though i would imagine it also changes the way that you might think about your own work i mean do you see it kind of coming out another uh, like you'd like to have these different ways to kind of access the same thing yeah so you've got these visual things that might hang on the wall you've got these sound things sure maybe some of the kind of collaborations is that something that you also kind of explore are kind of like additions and, you know, zines, like something that are separate from, you know, like what you do studio wise, but I feel that they're, they're linked, <laughs> you know, I really do. I really think that there's a lot, I mean, even in my, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, if the, the sound installations and the, and these kind of large tape collages, I think would are very linked. Um, and they're, uh, they definitely would suit, sit well together. And there's obviously like a, a direct line to what I'm, I mean, I still, I mean, I, I mean, I know it, it sounds kind of probably just really boneheaded, but I still record on the audio, the analog tape. I still like that, you know, and when I do like my solo stuff, I use like tape loops and I still make like, I saw like this crappy tape four track that I love. It's an old Tascam. I still, I love the sound of it, you know, like, but, uh, you know, so I know that there are these relationships and I think the quest as an artist is to just be sensitive to your influences and be open to where something from outside is going to take you. And I feel really fortunate that I was, you know, like I feel that, you know, if I, you know, I think, you know, the, the stubborn old me, you know, kind of went away <laughs> and I was able to, you know, kind of be open to like that. I had this, not necessarily an other life, but I have this other, I have this other life where I'm a musician and I, you know, perform and I make records and stuff. And I'm very fortunate in that, but you know, to, it's important to kind of get attuned to what influences are around you and how you can take from those experiences of, you know, watching as an engineer in a major studio, you know, cutting tape and talking about how they're doing their splices and all this stuff. And I mean, with that, it's like this crazy two inch tape. It's like really expensive and really beautiful. But, uh, you know, I think that that kind of, that kind of, um, you know, I, you know, you have to be open to accept that 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 can lead you to an interesting solution in your own work. You know, and is kind of like that analog sound. I mean, you know, in this time, I mean, what what's that relationship like? I mean, you've kind of talked about it a little bit, but sure. you know, we're we're in such a heavily digital kind of world in a yeah. way. It seems it seems like so so much more of an experience. 
you know, or kind of being in tune with it, like a experience that might be, again, different than, you know, working in a different way. I mean, is that, that kind of like, do you want to tap into something there or is it something that allows you to hear it in a different way or? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a record collector of some sorts, not as much as some of my friends, but, you know, I think that there's definitely been this interest in analog. I mean, I think from my experience in the, with my solo work or with uh Locri and any other project, you know, there's so many levels of digital, you know, uh, you know, where you're sending these high quality um, files to the manufacturer, to the mastering person, you know, that, that then will be pressed to vinyl. Um, there's a lot to take into consideration uh, with that. I mean, I think obviously, you know, you can record to analog tape. Um, you know, I think that, in some ways, I guess what always makes me curious is because I think that we're kind of at this point where we're, you know, a lot of this analog, you know, experience maybe is is reactionary. Like we're, we feel we're losing something because of the digital. Um, and I think that uh, that is, you know, that definitely is interesting to me. But then at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, again, uh, I've been, I've been making tape since I was 12 years old. So I don't understand why it has to change. <laughs> you know, like, like to me, it's like, I like how it sounds. I like the feel of the tape. I like that rectangle. It's, you know, like that hard plastic clunky rectangle that shakes when you, you know, that makes that rattling sound when you shake it. You know, I, I, I don't understand why that I have to change that experience and uh i I mean i get it you know i know audio and fidelity and all that stuff but i think that like and i'm definitely interested in that concern but i also think that it's like you know there's something to be said for like i love tape hiss i love like uh you know like my some of my favorite times like i don't don't know if you if you've ever like done this before you remember this like did you ever like accidentally hit record on a tape that what you didn't want to record on and then every time you play it there's like that dip that like because the magnetic head kind of like came up and hit the the thing even if you have the tabs tabs out you know in the tape you know I I, I sometimes I love that because it's just this grain of it is really interesting it's like like a CD once it gets something wrong with it the CD is done man you can't you can't do anything with that CD you know <laughs> like it's not gonna right. play you can't burn yeah but I mean like you know essentially like I mean a CD it kind of it kind of made itself obsolescent on its own because it's like. It's an audio transfer device. It is to transfer this audio to your iPod or, well, no one has an iPod anymore, to your phone. or They're not phones anymore, to your device. You know, it's like, this is our world. It's weird, you know, and I think, or to transfer the audio from the CD to your, to, you know, Mediafire so your friends can have that record you paid for for free and not have to pay those artists anything. Right. We're just in this really strange time. And I think that uh, you're definitely seeing people kind of return to the book rather than the ebook. You know, you're seeing this resurgence of art zines and art books, I think, because of that. It's like this, you know, we're just so dispersed uh, by digital media that it's like, let's uh, let's get back something, I guess, in some ways. We were just talking about this, um, you know, analog versus digital, and it, sure. it brought up a, to mind this movie that I watched with the wonderful Keanu Reeves narrating called um, Side by Side kind of explores that in filmmaking in terms of a practice, you know, oh, yeah. where people are using cameras versus digital processes and, yeah. you know, what limitations there are to things. I don't know. I, I think that that whole, I'm sure that whole argument has been there since, since I've been doing anything, you know, since I've been alive. But um, it's, it's interesting to think about because, 
you know, it seems like there's things that you give up and then there's things that you gain, you know, so there's yeah. advantages uh, depending on the person. So it's kind of interesting to think about how that might shape the way that somebody works, you know. Well, one thing that one thing I always I, I really do enjoy technology. <laughs> and uh, I think most I think most people do. And, uh, you know, whether we complain about it, you know, a lot, but, you know, I think we actually, and, uh, you know, I think something I, you know, I was thinking about the other day is that the freshmen that entered school this fall, past fall, they were born the year of like the first real marketable digital camera. So think about that, you know, like it's crazy to think about, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and the first real social media so, you know, that's like that other thing to think about, too. Well, and it makes me wonder kind of like what the price has to be to be able to access that technology. Because it sounds yeah. silly, but, you know, we might come from a time where going to a card catalog is just something that you do. Where it's <laughs> like, you know, if, if, if you ask a student to, I don't know, do something like that, they might not have an idea. Or like going to the library is like a physical thing. So it's like, why yeah, can't I just look that up on, you know... Inner, inner library loan or whatever. So why, I don't know. Why isn't it on Wikipedia, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's going to self-correct in some ways, you know, and I think, and, and, and alongside that, we're going to have these really bizarre, kind of strange, disjointed comparisons, right? So with audio uh, or with the, ta- the tape, right? I, I really am kind of fascinated by the phenomenon of like how in hip-hop culture, right, they make these mixtapes, but they're not mixtapes. There's no tape. There's no tape at all. It's just like a, it's just a mix. You just made a mix. You right, on, right. You put it on SoundCloud. Like, all right, you know. So I'm, I'm like fascinated by that. Like the, the the ghost of this old this residue of media remains. We call it a mixtape. There's no tape, and we're not even mixing that much. Most of the time, it's their own stuff, right? They call it a mixtape, but it's a it's an album essentially. So it's it's really really interesting the how the vernacular has shifted. Or you'll see like what there's this company uh, that I was looking at called uh, I think they're called mixtape or tape something, and they make like it looks like a cassette tape, but inside there's a USB, mm-hmm. and it's just like yeah, you make that. your mix on it. <laughs> It's like like you haven't heard of weed transfer. You've seen a really cute way of like transferring files or something. Right, right. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it, it's it's these ghosts kind of rear their heads, and, and I'm fascinated by that. Are there kind of musicians that kind of influence the way that you think about your work? Oh, definitely. I think that right now, probably, the, I, I'm I've been really kind of obsessed with music concrete um, as a movement, kind of from France in like the 40s and 50s. And the um, the INA GRM studios out of France. I mean, composers technically, I think, like Pierre Schaeffer, Pierre Henry. Um, so I definitely look at these uh, musicians, composers, artists, Evo Malik, or even some. There's like this uh, early Yana Senecas piece that all made with tape of found sounds or generated sounds, or even using early synthesizers or early electronics oscillators and whatnot that. I think it was groundbreaking. It's really interesting to listen to. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I mentioned other like Stockhausen and stuff. So those are the people that I'm definitely like, I kind of keep like coming back to. John Cage did that too. David Tudor. And it was really early Steve Reich pieces that, that uh, like it's going to rain or come out um, before he started doing like the f- performers who are phasing. Uh, those are just the, I think, con- the content of the ideas are just so interesting. But obviously, you know, I think like, you know, there are 
like William Burroughs and the cut up, you know, it's just like a, that's a, you know, he used analog tapes and chopped them up, you know, and, and, you know, I think that that's, you know, it definitely kind of inspires me to go back to their work and think about it and, and, um, and definitely influences where I am with, with my stuff. Uh, I mean, there's obviously tons of music. I listen to too much music, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, but I, lo- I mean, I, I, I like that. That's like what I, I spend a lot of time, like just playing a lot of music, but, um, you know, the, there's this record label called Editions Migo out of uh, Europe. I, I think maybe out of Austria or out of France. And, um, the musician who runs the label is a really great electronic musician, uh, Peter Raber. He has a uh, side label called Recollection GRM, where they're kind of reissuing uh, pieces by um, uh, Luke Ferrari or Francois Bayle or uh, you know, uh, Pierre Schaefer, the kind of uh, one of the uh, patriarchs of uh, music concrete. And uh, you know, I definitely am. It's exciting to kind of look, listen back to this music that was so groundbreaking, you know, in its time, and and hear it and really well preserved and uh, well presented. Cool. Well, again, it's it's really awesome to see how all these different facets of uh, your your personality kind of play out in the studio. The way that yeah. they. <laughs> and of course, it's like heavy metal tape trading is others. I mean, like you know, there's 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 all that too. You know, like like you know, like going back to that stuff, but. Right now, that's kind of where my head's been—is just like finding that stuff. But and and so and so, um, you're also going on tour this uh, this coming this coming week. Sure. So yeah. you kind of get to take yeah. again a nice trip to to kind of get some new experiences and and play. Where are you playing at again? So uh, Locrian is playing. There's this uh, really great festival in the Netherlands called the Roadburn, and uh, it's predominantly metal. This older kind of progressive rock band called Magma is playing. I'm really excited. We're not going to be able to see them, which is kind of a bummer, but it's really cool they're playing. So uh, it'll be Roadburn in Tilburg in the Netherlands. Then we go to a really interesting event in Brussels in Belgium where we're the only band playing. (laughs) And before we play, Brandon Stusoy, the editor of Pitchfork, is going to present about, he has this really great paper he wrote called A Blaze in the North American Sky about black metal in America. Then him and I are going to talk about it <laughs> afterwards. Awesome. So it'll be really interesting. I definitely have opinions about it. Um, I, I Although I, I tend to think before in Belgium that James Enzer is the most black metal thing that uh, I could think of <laughs> to relate to. I mean, his stuff's pretty brutal. Uh, and then we go to Karlsruhe, Germany, to play this uh, another festival. Um, and then I have to wake up, get in the car, and get to the airport and fly home so I can teach on Monday. So a very busy uh, week, but we're really really excited. It's our first time to Europe. Um, we've been asked probably for the last six years to come. So it's been nice that everything could work out um, to be able to make it over there and perform. Awesome. And then when you... When all that clears, you go back to playing with tape and, <laughs> yeah. and seeing how that works out yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Do, no, and seeing yeah. where the next adventure goes. Again, it's a really interesting way to kind of have that kind of mix up and, and also kind of, well, to lack of a better word, I mean, kind of get remixed back into to sure. you, you know? So. It's, it's, a, it's perfectly apt. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time to, to sure, speak with thanks, you this David. morning, Terrence. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. Thanks once again to Terrence for joining us, and please go check out his website, terrencehannum.com. Once again, tons of different work up there, including 
the images that we were talking about, the abstractions with the magnetic tape, as well as the zines, the sound pieces. So peruse, go check them out. And, of course, follow the blog if you want to stay more up to date with what he's doing. I do want to remind new listeners that I'm also an artist. You can check out my work at davidlinaway.com. You'll see there's a hyperlink on Studio Break, so it's pretty easy. I just posted a bunch of new paintings up there dealing with the southern Illinois landscape where I spent a great deal of time. Again, much of my work incorporates small towns, architecture, and these kind of nostalgic experiences that I have visiting a place or traveling through it. So please check out my work to find out more. Once again, our big announcement this time of year, our 2014 competition is open. Our juror, Richard Holland of Bad at Sports, the podcast heard around the world and started years ago, has grown into this massive army of global contributors. So we're very excited to have Richard on to be our juror. Once again, artists of any media can apply, and that is in three different categories, undergraduate, BAs and BFAs, MAs and MFAs, and professional artists can apply to the Studio Break competition. Again, we're going to have three winners from each of those categories, and one winner from each of those categories will be set up in a solo exhibition. We've got some great venues this year that include the Peoria Art Guild, Jan Brandt Gallery, and Demo Projects. So once again, if you want to find out more details please visit our competition page listed right on studiobreak.com. And, of course, please let your friends know if any artists you think would fit on Studio Break and maybe would be interested in a solo exhibition, please share this opportunity. We really appreciate it. Once again, it's really easy with all those share buttons, and we want to remind you that we are on all sorts of different social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, our Facebook page. You can like it, and, of course, you can find out about upcoming guests and announcements there we are on tumblr that's studio-break.tumblr so we try to uh, get it out there as much as possible lastly we are on itunes so if you want you can always always subscribe there and get new podcasts every time they come out once again we do ask that if you have been listening for a while and you enjoy it on itunes please leave us some comments and some feedback there Again, it just helps visibility in iTunes, and there are thousands and millions and billions of people out there that are interested in podcasts and are looking for all sorts of stuff to check out each week, so you can help them do that. We really appreciate it. And once again, please take the time to check out studiobreak.com. We've got a lot of different interviews. Once again, recent interviews with Mary Lauby, Richard Holland from Bad at Sports, I did a podcast with John Reddington about our show out in Delaware. We had Nathan Meltzon from the Screen Print Biennial. Mel Cook, who is a painter that had a show at the Peoria Art Guild and our MFA winner from last year. So please check out all the episodes that you missed. Again, there's a lot of them. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.